Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Zach. Welcome to the Founder Pack Podcast. Hey, Brennan. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to have you back on my new project. Last time we spoke, you were on another podcast, Cybersecurity Heroes. This is my new gig. Thank you for supporting it. We were just talking off camera about your time off and your exit with Ninjio. So maybe you want to just give us a little background about you and what you've been up to. Yeah, so coincidentally, this is a, this is a great day for me. It was a year ago today that I, uh, that I exited Ningio, uh, sold, it to, sold a majority, vast majority stake uh, to a private equity group called Gage Capital based out of Dallas, Texas. And uh, also coincidentally, and this is, this is kind of a cool story, it was seven years ago today that I came up with the idea for Ningio. And the way that I know that is um, I take notes in an in a, in a application called Evernote. And I had a timestamp on um, sort of this outline for a cybersecurity business. And the, the problem that I was trying to solve was, you know, I, I, I'd read an article that 95% of security breaches were due to human error. That was an IBM publication uh, many years back. And I said to myself, wow, um, you know, my, my prior career was in managed services, IT, setting up networks and security systems, et cetera. And, uh, you know, the Cisco's of the world are were trying to solve or still are trying to solve the, the security threats by, you know, using technology. And I, after reading that article, I'm like, that's crazy. Like technology is not working, <laughs> right? And so I, I then sort of went on this little expedition of, of um, I wonder how people are trying to solve the human behavior issue that's going on. If 95% of breaches are due to human error, it's a human behavior issue. And uh, I did a quick YouTube search under, you know, security training or security awareness training. And the first thing that I came across was a, uh, was a 45 minute long death by PowerPoint where the lecturer went over, um, 14 topics in the first 10 minutes about, you know, security awareness. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, there's no way people are going to be able to really capture this information and there's certainly no way that if they do capture it that they're really going to be able to retain it and so um so i identified a pretty big gap and said you know it'd be really cool if we could do three to four minute long stories about security breaches and then have sort of a takeaway or a teachable moment in in each of those stories and then release them on a monthly basis and have people sort of you know, keep fresh on security topics on a monthly um, sort of cadence than an annual cadence, which is what the industry was doing and in some cases still is. And so uh, it was seven years ago today that I kind of had that idea of like, you know, small micro learning animated episodes that talk about a particular security breach and, and how to protect yourself from a similar breach. 
And um, yeah, so July 15th for me is a, a pretty pivotal day or I should say a very important day for me in, in, you know, a couple of different aspects, both from an ideation phase and, a and a exit, uh, phase. Right. So, uh, so yeah, since, since then, uh, I, you know, I'm still on the board, uh, of the business. I, I transitioned to, um, a new CEO. Uh, it was my intention when the private equity group took over, I was like, look, I'm a builder, not a scaler. And, uh, you know, my expertise is in, building businesses, not scaling them. And so it was my desire to sort of, you know, pass the baton on to a professional management organization. And so, um, yeah, we've successfully done that. We've got a new CEO that started at the beginning of the year, sort of like, you know, mid February I handed, uh, officially was like, okay, the, my baby is your baby now. And, uh, we've done phenomenal. We've, uh, we've grown the business or I should say they've grown the business by, you know, 53% year over year. Um, so it, uh, it just shows that we, you know, we did have a good business, not dependent upon the leader of the business, which is really the, the definition of a great business. Right. And, um, yeah, so that's, uh, th that's kind of the story and, and what's, what's transpired. And it was not, too long after July 4th. So that's also a nice kind of yeah. <laughs> coincidence. <laughs> that's right. So I have so many questions for you, but I'll try to hold them back <laughs> in order and get there eventually. So usually I, I ask uh, my guests to share like one fun fact about themselves. Fun fact about me. Uh, maybe my background actually says a little something. I, I'm a huge sneakerhead and sneaker collector. And uh, this is a picture of the uh, off-white uh, Chicago uh, Jordan 1s. Um, off-white is a brand that was started by a guy named Virgil, uh, who unfortunately passed away maybe a year, year and a half ago. Uh, but his legacy lives on. Um, they're still creating nice collaborations with Nike. Um, so, uh, yeah, fun fact about me. Uh, sneakerhead guy <laughs> not all ceos have to be buttoned up and suits uh, right? that is correct yeah i show up to every board meeting with a pair of jordans on actually that that's that's one of my questions for later on about how to manage the board because a lot of founders in my community actually that was one question that kind of came up so we'll we'll get there but i wanted to go back for a second to just sort of the lessons learned along your journey. So you've, you're a two-time founder with two exits in a row. <laughs> like congrats again uh, on, on your achievements. How, what are like the major lessons learned from your first startup to your second? Cause you were, we were, again, we were talking off camera and you s said how much more efficient you were with your time yeah. in the second one. I guess it's sort of obvious that you would be better the second time round, but I'm sure every business has its own life and not necessarily past success is going to determine future success. So I, I, I'll let you take it in, in the lessons learned any direction you want. Yeah. I mean, wow. I mean, really, I think, you know, going through an exit the first time around and then sort of determining what sort of business to build the second time around, I mean, there's, there's so many things that I did 
better. And it's really a conglomeration of all of those things kind of sort of coming together that, that made me, uh, you know, a lot more efficient and productive and, and, and better the second time around. But, you know, I think sort of the, the, one of the key takeaways that I had after the first business was that, you know, my, my, in my first business, I, I, I owned a managed services, uh, provider and we sort of morphed into that. Like I started that back in 1995 and, you know, there was a key learning moment for me there about recurring revenue. And when I had first started the business, you know, we were sort of what's known as sort of a break fix type of outfit where, you know, we serviced um, small and, and, and on the smaller side of medium businesses uh, and, and their computer systems. And, and when something would break, we would go in and fix it. And then I had bought a few clients from a guy named Todd Wexler um, back in like 1997. And what his client base was were recurring revenue contracts where he would pre-schedule and go out. And I really learned from that just about the sort of what's now the subscription, you know, as a service sort of model, right? Um, but the key to that business and the key to that business's success uh, and the profitability behind the business was really the recurring revenue model. And when I sold that business, CalNet, back in 2013, I think we were roughly 60% recurring revenue and then 40% was project-based revenue, you know, the sales of, of uh, hardware and software, which has greatly diminished over the last, you know, eight years since I, I nine years now, I guess, since I sold that company. Um, but going into Ningio, I was, you, you know, there were a couple of like really core philosophies as we talked sort of off camera. Number one was, you know, I identification of a problem that is a really big problem and where you see a, a big opportunity in terms of a gap to fill. And so that was number one, like that was my number one MO going into like, okay, I want to start a new company. What am I looking for? Right. And number two was the business model had to be, had to be, 100% recurring revenue, right? Like that was so important to me because I never wanted to be in the business of you start off the first of the month, the first of the quarter, the first of the year at zero. And now you have to, you know, get yourself to 10 million in sales or whatever that number might be. And so um, the learning lesson which I sort of knew at the time when starting it, but it proved to be true. You know, my first business was sold on a multiple of EBITDA. My second business was sold on a multiple of revenue, right? And if you think about an exit, where where would you rather be, right? Would you rather be selling on a multiple of EBITDA or multiple of revenue? Almost everybody I think in the world would, would say a multiple of revenue. And so that recurring subscription part of it was, was uh, extremely important and, and solidified a, a learning lesson. I think that I already knew on, um, I'll stop there. I could probably come up with, with a couple more, um, maybe, you know, sort of post-transaction if you want me to continue on, but I know you got a whole list of questions, so I want to be mindful of time. Yeah, sure. So I think what would be, and this is just me thinking out loud, 
most useful for founders is to learn what mistakes you kind of made as a first-time founder and then those things that you did better as a second-time founder as specific as you can like you mentioned you wanted to be an ARR business but how did you go to market in your second company yeah it's hard to compare I think company number one with company number two because they were so vastly different right one was heavy uh personnel intensive services and the other was, you know, a content driven business that wasn't as dependent upon, you know, the first company was sort of like a recurring billable hours model. Second company was a more of a software model, right? So it's, it's sort of hard to compare. I think the first two from a, from a go to market strategy. Um, but you know, th there were definitely a few things that I learned with Ninjio along the way. And, um, I think really the first thing is sort of having a a very liberal marketing and I wouldn't call it a product-led growth model because we didn't have true product-led growth where you could like sign up for the full platform for free and everything else but what we what we did do I think really well was you know we we built these episodes that were subscription based but we were very liberal in showing people at no cost what they looked like, how they performed, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And where, where I think some of our competition was a little bit more sort of protective of what they were trying to do. And we were just more of like, like just let it out into the ether and some people might take advantage of it because we have videos up on YouTube and maybe they were distributing, you know, our YouTube links to internal employees for training and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I didn't care. Like I really wanted to spread the word in a very sort of liberal way. And when I say liberal, uh, I just mean like free flowing and like, like let everybody enjoy it. And then the goodness will come back around, um, to you. Right. And, uh, it, it, it was that sort of go-to-market strategy of almost a product-led growth model of like, you know, get it out there and then people will come back and they'll, and they'll buy it. And I think that's a, that was a, a really big um, learning lesson for me that I'll, I'll definitely be able to apply, you know, to future businesses on a go-forward basis is, uh, you know, don't, don't wait for a sales call to you know, explain what you're all about, let people taste it before the sales call really even happens. I think that was kind of kind of key in the success of the business. I, I'm totally on board with that approach. I think the way people buy today, they have more power than the companies have these days. The, the sales experience or the buyer experience is totally flipped in the last you know, five plus years. Yes. It's uh, yeah, very much a buyer's market now. That's and right. Companies need to adapt. Yeah, I mean, you know, our, our new CSO says this over and over again, like by the time a sales call actually happens, like the buyer understands the product really well. You know, there's just so much out there in terms of just even your own website and, you know, Gartner Peer Insights and softwarereviews.com and like, you know, just all of these ratings review things and, and you know, testimonials of, of other users of, of the software and 
these communities of practice where you've got these CISO groups that all get together, you know, on a quarterly basis or, or what have you and talk about like the vendor relationships that are working and are not. And, you know, it's just, it's really the case that the buyer is extremely educated by the time they get to, you know, the salesperson. So it's, it's important that you educate them and you put content out there in the right way. So they're educated in the right way and can develop the the correct opinions of your of your solution and then if we will stay on this thread for a few more minutes yeah. as a founder what would you say is your superpower is it operations is it hiring and culture sales marketing product there's a reason i'm asking so i just want to first get your <laughs> feedback on that i think my superpower is i think i've had two of them and i think the first one um goes along the line of sales and it's my ability to explain technical things to non-technical people in a way that they understand and, and can grasp and can appreciate. I think that's number one. I think number two is um, my ability that I wasn't born with, but I was able to develop over hiring now, you know, maybe almost a thousand people like actually myself. And it's my ability to make, to discern people's character um, and my ability to get the right people on the bus. I don't always put them on the right seat, but I know how to get the right people on the bus. And I think that the people who have worked for me, I, I, I really try and carry forward the spirit of transparency in, in, in really involving maybe maybe to my detriment, involving the entire company um, and being like fully transparent around, you know, our financials and our growth and our profitability and just sort of everything so that it all levels of the company, even though, you know, we I've always had privately held businesses, like at all levels, they have a thorough understanding of the business. And I think sometimes I might over disclose and uh, maybe put people to sleep when I'm talking to my animation team about financials and they're kind of like, okay, well, I appreciate that you're sharing this, but can I get back to work now? <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think that just sort of that transparent level of leadership that I have has been, uh, I think it's really been a huge benefit to the success of, of my businesses. So the reason I was asking is I would like to continue on for a few more minutes on the lessons learned from first business to second business through that lens of your your superpower lenses. Maybe we'll, we'll start, I guess, where we left off. How did you sort of do sales differently or better the second time around? And how did you learn to to hire better and, and make sure you're getting the right people on the bus uh, using your term? Yeah. So I think that, you know, the, the sales side of the business, um, and maybe we should talk first about marketing because of the, you know, the, the one, I think, big difference between, I mean, maybe not big difference, but earlier you were talking about boards and how to manage boards and fundraising. You know, both of the businesses that I started were bootstrapped. So 100% of the funds on the first business just came out of, you know, me going around as a consultant, a trunk slammer, so to speak, of, 
you know, going out and fixing computers and making money and then taking that money and investing it back to the business, et cetera, et cetera. And then building it to, you know, roughly a $20 million uh, business. And then Ninja, I really did the same thing. Luckily I had more money at that point to be able to, to, to start. Um, but, uh, so I think the, the compare and contrast of first business to second business and, and really sort of like my business model versus other founders business models where they have this massive infusion of capital to basically go out and what I like to call pray or spray and pray, right? Like, like spread the word out over all these multiple platforms and then just pray that like one of them's going to work and one of them's going to hit because, you know, social media advertising in many ways is still an experiment in terms of like brand awareness and everything else. Um, but the marketing vehicles and sorry to, sorry to interrupt yeah. you. That also comes with this old philosophy, but it seems to be kind of becoming less popular, you know, company growth strategies, blitz scaling, mm -hmm. like it came from the Silicon Valley. I think mm -hmm. it was Reed Hoffman who coined the term blitz scaling. Yeah. So I guess you were also kind of competing with those sort of companies that were doing the marketing, heavy marketing and the blitz scaling strategy in parallel. Yeah, a, a, a thousand percent. And I think that, um, you know, if you look at our uh, Ninja's biggest competitor at the time, and I still think our biggest competitor is a company called Nobefore, and who you're obviously familiar with, with your, with your background. And uh, they definitely did that, right? They had, you know, big infusions of capital from different private, e private equity groups. And uh, so they were able to just go out and, and crush the market with respect to marketing. And also, also with respect to their their pricing, right? They were always sort of the low cost leader, and, and possibly still are. Um, and so, competing against that, you know, it's not easy. Uh, but I think that the magic comes where when you're sort of on a bootstrap and you're a lot more methodical about your marketing. You you tend to really take every lead that comes in, you know, as a piece of gold. Whereas when you're blitz marketing and you develop all this interest in all these leads, those leads I don't think get appropriately nurtured because at scale, or I sh what I should say is when you're scaling, you don't really have a solid grasp around all of your sales and marketing, around all of your nurturing programs, around all of that sort of stuff because you know, you, you're scaling so quickly and it's just hard to get your arms around that scale. Whereas, you know, I'm more of a organic scale kind of person where it's like, you do this, does it work? Yes or no. If it works, continue to do it. But every lead that you produce or every incoming inquiry that you produce, you, you have to treat it like gold. Like it's your last lead that you're going to get. And so that just sort of morphs into making sure that your salespeople are fully trained and fully uh, engrossed in the product that they believe in it, that they love it. I think that's very important. And, um, you know, getting back sort of to your question, company one versus company two, company two was much more of a social media sort of, you know, internet based uh, advertising model where company one, I mean, I literally started in the yellow pages with like a little yellow page ad. And my, my goal there was make my ad, 
completely different from everybody else's. Like use a bunch of white space. I don't know if if the, the your audience remembers like flipping through the yellow pages, but there were all these like busy, busy ads. And I wanted mine to have like very like one line sentence with a lot of white space. So it's like, oh, wait a minute. There's a lot of, you know, so just being different in the way that you market, I think is, is, is really key. And, you know, and, and I, I always like different. I always like to figure out like, how can you do this better, but different? And um, that, I, I guess that was just a, a big learning lesson that I had along the way, really of both businesses. No, that makes a lot of sense. I like this quote, different forces a choice versus mm. better. It's like debatable, mm. you know, mm -hmm. maybe not, maybe it doesn't apply to like marketing campaigns, but to products and businesses, different forces a choice. Yeah. Uh, better. It's debatable. Yeah. I, I even think you can apply that sort of that, that quote to, to, to marketing campaigns as well. And, you know, every once in a while, you'll, you'll come across something in your Instagram feed, you know, cause you just get every fourth ad, every fourth post now is a, is an ad that's targeted at you. And so you start to become numb to them, but every once in a while, you'll just come across something. And you're like, wow, they really had a headline that was different, that got me to click, that got me to engage. And it might've been a lot of times for me, it's something that I, that comes across as very transparent. Like, you know, this isn't a headline that I've used, but like something like, you know, we, we might not be the cheapest or the least expensive. That's probably a bad example, but maybe, maybe something like, maybe we're not the best, but we're trying to be the best. Like if somebody said that to me, I'd be like, wow, that's, that's pretty honest. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe we're kind not the best, like, but we're the best uh, value Avis. or whatever. What's it's like Avis Rent-A-Car. Their tagline was like, we try harder. Something oh, yeah, that, like that's that. right. Like, that's right. Yeah, we try harder. Yeah, that's exactly. Like something where you're just like, oh, wow, that's that's cool. That's different. I, I think, I think uh, at least for me, right? And that's maybe that's what I'm attracted to are, are things that come across as, as different. And I think it does start with marketing and messaging, really. Like, how are you positioning your brand? to be like really different than everybody else. Not just saying that you're different, but you actually are, right? I think that's, I mean, I'll tell you the next business that I start, that's gonna be like a hallmark point of like, how can we message this and how can we actually be different than somebody else's? Like trying to solve a problem in a different way. Yeah, it, it needs to be congruent. Like just because you say you're different, it doesn't necessarily- You gotta be able to deliver on that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think the best company, well, like the pioneers of that, or at least one of the pioneers of that is Apple, like looking at your, looking at your mm -hmm. awesome headphones, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Apple does that seamlessly and, and, and almost at ease. They're pretty awesome at sticking to that different, think different. It's core to their DNA, that yeah. way of thinking, thinking yeah. different. Yeah. Cool. And then perhaps to sort of wrap up on this, what hiring lessons did you learn from both mm. companies and how did you hire the best talent? What stood out to you mm. in terms of making those great hires? How did you get them on board when the company was in the early days? You know? Yeah, man, I think one of my biggest learning lessons, and this might be old school, but 
because I think people switch positions so frequently now moving from one company to the next, but I don't feel as though an employee really has a full, and it depends on the position, right? But certainly like somebody in sales, like you really don't have a full grasp on what it is you're selling and kind of the intrinsic value to what you're selling. I, I think it takes a year for somebody to really intrinsically understand the value of the business, assuming the business adds value, you know, the business in which you're, you're working for. And so um, I, I think one of the biggest things that I looked, looked for and will continue to look for is loyalty. Like when I look at a resume and I see that somebody was someplace for eight months and then a year and two months and then a year and eight months. And then, you know, you kind of go in the back of your head, like I'm going to spend all this money, all this time, effort and energy hiring this person. And it's pretty likely that after a year and a half to two years, they're going to be gone. Right. And that's not to say that you can't get value out of somebody that's been there for a year, because I do think some people come in and are game changers and they might change something around inside of a year and maybe they leave and you can still reap value from that. But I am a firm believer that loyalty to a company and, and how long you've worked at a particular company really says something about your character. It says something about your level of commitment. I think that there are a lot of people that can get hired somewhere and they can sort of skate by for a year to a year and a half and maybe not perform well. And just going through the, the lengthy process of, of being disciplined and coached and everything else, like you can still go somewhere for a year and a half and, and sort of be under the radar and not perform well. But it's a lot harder to do that after three years or four years. And so somebody who is with a company for three to four years and has sort of stood the test of time and then they voluntarily left that business, um, I just think that that says a lot, right? And so when I'm scanning through somebody's resume, the first thing that I'm looking for is, are they a job hopper? And if they are, I really don't give them the second look. And every once in a while, you'll find a stint or like maybe one or two positions where they were there for a shorter period of time. But then you find one or two positions where they were there for five years plus. So, you know, they have the capacity to commit and to be, you know, fully invested in the business. Um, and so I might give those folks a look and then try and find out, you know, what happened in these couple of shorter stints. But um, I feel like I've had really good success in getting the right people on board when you you look at their longevity you know at their at their prior companies and and another huge one for me is um in your list of references like who are they are you listing your former managers that you worked for right as a reference or the ceo of the old company that you worked for as a reference to me that speaks volumes about that person right and if if their former ceo is endorsing them on linkedin or even better yet you know in the interview process they say or or on their their application they put in like their former ceo and their mobile the ceo's mobile number and say contact them anytime like that's just like that's gold right there right 
So I think, you know, those are some of the things I look for when, when hiring and, uh, you know, they, they seem obvious to me now. And I, I just don't think they're obvious to everybody. I, I can a hundred percent attest to that and agree with that. I'm currently going through a job search myself and my CEO is like hundred percent supportive mm. and backing me up. And it's really opening doors for me big oh, yeah. time by having him being my biggest not to mention you were you were there for like what seven years six seven years almost seven like yeah six and a bit yeah Yeah. i mean that's huge like if i were hiring right now you'd be hired (laughs) (laughs) i'll hopefully you find your next company in the next few weeks (laughs) (laughs) Because with inflation you know it's tight these days oh yeah no i know it's horrible (laughs) um but yeah that that's that's sage advice. And then, yeah, I was thinking uh, about Gen Z, like how much experience have you had in the workforce with Gen Z? They're going to be the next predominant segment in the workforce. Uh, definitely, I think with every generation and probably a little bit more pronounced with this generation, they're, they're uh, absolutely different. Um, I think, uh, and certainly not trying to belittle them or, or whatever. I think you're, you're a product of your environment and how you were raised and everything else. But I think there, there is a little bit of an, an entitlement sort of culture that, that goes on like, Hey, what are you going to do for me? Um, and a lot of that, I think, you know, not to get sort of, you know, uh, psychological here, but a lot of that, I think just has to do with your upbringing and, and that, uh, you know, a lot of these kids were, it was like, you know, everybody gets a, tr- a participation trophy and, and there's no winner. There's only players of the game and sort of that mentality that sort of, you know, I think pushed this, this entitlement sort of thing forward. And, but, but having said that, um, I, I do feel as though there are uh, a whole lot of diamonds in the rough and there are a whole lot of kids that still really want to hustle. There are still a lot of kids that really want to prove themselves and they want to prove their value. And they have this understanding of, um, yes, I do need to prove myself, but when I do prove myself, I will be rewarded for doing so. And I'm okay with that mentality 100%. And so, again, I think it's just identifying, like, you know, those sorts of, of people. Um, you know, I interviewed a guy once who uh, I had asked him a question, um, and I, I can't quote this chapter and verse exactly what it was, but it had something to do with his history and his comment back to me was, well, that's on my resume. Like I'm interviewing a hundred people for a position and I'm supposed to remember like what's on his resume. So instead of sort of re-explaining what was on his resume, he just left it with, oh, that's on my resume. Okay. Well, you have a nice day. Good luck in your job search. Right? Like that just, that doesn't work for (laughs) me and anybody else that that works for, if you are, if you are sort of fooled by the person's ego and and maybe this sense of confidence then i'm sorry but um 
you know, it just doesn't work for my hiring practices. So to answer your question, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's more difficult, but I also think it presents an opportunity for those of us who are good at identifying, you know, the right talent, because I think you can identify the right talent absolutely exists, not only professionally and what they know from an educational background or what have you, but I think from a character background, I think there's a lot of, a lot of good kids out there. In, in, in the Gen Z, you just gotta, you gotta be able to find them. Can you point to a few more areas of importance that Gen Z really holds dear to the workplace? Like some of them may be generic and obvious, but, you know, feel free to go through the list. But yeah, I think just curious. To- yeah. On a, so on a, on a, maybe mo- a more positive note, the one thing that's remarkable about the Gen Z uh, generation is their ability to adapt, be flexible, and embrace things that are new or different. You know, they're not, um, and maybe this just comes with age, but they are not sort of stuck in their ways. And so, you know, sometimes when you hire somebody that's a lot later in their career, you get somebody who, you know, maybe through an interview process, and I've certainly had mishires from this aspect of like, Yes, I'm willing to learn. Yes, I'm willing to do things differently than I've done them in the past to do things better, perhaps. But then they get on board and it's kind of like, oh, you, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, um, which I have been successful at teaching an old dog new tricks, but most of the time I'm not successful in doing that. And so you try and steer away from that. But the Gen Z generation, I think some combination of them being um, you know, less experienced in the business world. Um, but maybe more importantly, uh, they're sort of like embracing of new technology and their willingness to, to move or to sort of be engaged with what's new and upcoming and sort of pivot on, you know, the way that they do things. I think that's a big benefit to businesses because you can get fresh thinking in, you can get people who might look at a particular business or maybe a go-to-market strategy or just something that they're doing and you can get somebody to come in and be like, well, I've got experience doing this a different way. Like, let's maybe try a different way. And I think they're also willing to say, oh, that way didn't work. So let's pivot, right? That word pivot has been pretty, uh, uh, it's been high in people's vocabulary for the next, for the last five to 10 years. And uh, that's people's ability to say, well, if it's not working, I'm going to try and figure something else out. And I think Gen Z really has sort of that characteristic. Stepping up on this subject, what have you found sort of successful in hiring Gen Z, getting them excited about working for you? Or Yeah, uh, it's, it's a good, th- that's a good question. I think, um, you know, at Ninja, we had such unique business and we were attacking a problem in such a different way that for a lot of people that I hired or that I certainly that I, that I interviewed, they understood how we were attacking an issue and like they got it. They just understood it like right away. And because of the fact that we are solving such a 
big problem in such a different way that really adds value. And I'm saying this all like a year out of outside of like selling the company, right? Like it, it really is and was and still is a, a tremendous business uh, just from the value that we add to, to people's lives and the company's lives. Um, I think that the like our ability to retain the Gen Z talent because of our mission and our purpose and what we were trying to do. And then sort of like the full transparency culture that I've developed. I think our ability to retain Gen Z, the Gen Z population has far exceeded many, many other companies ability to retain them. Interesting uh, stat is through COVID and even coming out of COVID, there was this great resignation um, thing that was happening, right? Like you had massive amounts of turnover within organizations. And I think a testament to the culture that we built was up until, uh, I think up until last month, prior to last month, the last employee of Ninjio that voluntarily resigned was in 2018. So if you think about that, for literally four years, we didn't have an employee leave our business. Like not a single That's one. Impressive. And and wow. uh, we weren't huge. Like it was a relatively small business on the employee side, like less than 50 employees. But but still, like that stat is, is I think tremendous, and I think it just, um, I, you know, I think it's about the way that our, our culture is about treating people, treating them fairly, but still towing a line on 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 discipline, and and really it's a it's a testament to the the solution itself and and people's belief in it. And even the, 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 the guy that left in 2018, you know, he, he was an animator and uh, he left to go to work for Disney at double the salary. And so it's kind of hard to compete with that when that's like in many animators' minds, like that's the holy grail is to go to work for Disney. Um, and then we had a, a gal, another animator that just recently left for for health issues not because she left to take a job with a competitor somewhere else it was like she's moving to a different country um and sort of like just decompressing and and dealing with health issues and so we've done a phenomenal job knock on wood of, of retaining top talent and i think um and there's lots of gen z's that are in that mix that's huge i did an interview i think about a year ago talking about churn in companies and it's really expensive as you scale to replace an employee depending on the the statist the stat or the article that you're reading they all range between like 35 to 55,000 dollars i think to to replace an employee yeah. i'm not sure if i got the number 100% yeah, but I, it was somewhere I, in i can't recall range. the stats off the top of my head either but from my recollection, it's like at least a year's salary between like 
everything. Yeah, maybe I'm a bit on the lower yeah. end. Maybe I'm a bit on the lower end. Yeah, when you but, look at um, everything, and 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 the, it, it it also widely varies based on the position, right? If it's somebody in in a in a company that produces widgets and they're in customer support and they're like doing the same rote activity over and over and over again, like you can probably get that person training up to speed in a matter of, of months and it's not that costly with churn. But when you talk about like a sales rep who's built sort of a book of business and, you know, they leave for, a, in their mind, what's a better opportunity, like, man, that's expensive to the organization. When you think about the amount of time, effort, and energy you put into a salesperson, which just really shows like, you you know, hire slow, fire fast. That's always, that's been a mentality that I've used. And like, just like double check and, and make those extra like three or four phone calls to check references and to talk to people in their past and all that stuff. Like use that extra, what might be like an hour's worth of time to make sure that you're absolutely to the best of your ability, hiring the right person. Because if you don't, it's so expensive to make a to make a mishire. I mean, man, is it expensive. And especially as a startup, you don't have the luxury of time, mm-hmm. money, and runway yeah. all that. So, Absolutely. Cool. So thanks. This is fascinating. I wanted to end off with managing the board. That was a big one that came up a lot in the community. Yeah. So I don't know how deep this can go, but you're welcome to give us some high level takeaways on how do you manage a board or what does it take to have a good relationship with the board? What does that look like? We have about five or 10 minutes to wrap so up. So I don't know if I'm going to be a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this. And the reason is most startups, 95% of them that are in tech go out and raise money. And as a um, requisite of raising money, you know, you, you inherit a, a board, a board of directors, who ultimately, if you're not majority owner and whatever it is, you know, they have a controlling interest in, in you know, whether you stay or whether you go, et cetera. And even if they don't have a controlling interest, but they have a, you know, a big interest, um, that's, uh, that's different than the situation that I came out of, right? So in my situation, both businesses were bootstrapped. I never had a board with either company until uh, the company was sold. And, you know, the, the first company that I sold are, uh, no, we did have a board actually. Yeah, for sure we had a board. My memories are not as vivid as this, you know, as Ningio. Um, but I never had a board as an operating CEO. I've always had a board as a post-operating CEO that I was on the board with, right? So I never had a board that I reported to. So I'm probably not the best guy to, to, to talk through this. I mean, the only thing that I can say today is you, when going through, in my situation, a process where you're going to sell the business and, and most specifically to private equity. If you're going to roll equity in the business, you want to make sure that you're not necessarily selling for the highest dollar amount, but you're selling to who you view to be the most capable 
private equity group that's going to form the board and managing partners are going to be chairmans and chairwomans of the board. So picking the right group to sell to, especially when you're rolling equity, is, I'm not going to say way more important, but it's it's more important than the dollar amount you get, right? So, so if there's a plus or minus 10% differential in the dollars that you put in your pocket at the sale process, and you clearly view one potential acquirer as having just a significant higher level of capability and your personality meshes with theirs and you have the, the, the best, most cohesive long-term vision. Um, you know, like I look at our business today and, you know, we've grown by 50 plus percent year over year. We're valued on a multiple of revenue. So that equity that I rolled is now worth, you know, assumedly, um, all economic factors being uh, equal is worth 50% plus more than what I sold the business for a year ago, right? That's pretty important and that's pretty material. And so um, looking for a private equity group that therefore forms into a board that you can get along with and has the same long-term vision that you do, I think is really important. And then it's also like you have to realize as a CEO when you're sort of tapped out and I don't know if I was tapped out with respect to my growth and scale capacity. What I do know is I never had grown and scaled a business the way that they've grown and scaled the business before. I hadn't done that. So uh, A, I didn't know if I could. B, I didn't know if I was really up for the challenge of doing so and risking all of my own money to do that. And so you know, bringing on um, a private equity group and bringing on a, a board if we want to have maybe a whole nother segment on the learning lessons that I've learned post acquisition on how to professionally grow and scale a business, it's been mind blowing what I've learned in the last year. Absolutely mind blowing. But in terms of managing expectations for a board, I, I really haven't had to do that. So I'm probably not best to sort of opine on that piece. So, so you said something interesting in the beginning, and perhaps we can take it from that angle. You mentioned not giving up or, or at least, trying not to lose your veto rights or your majority on the board. Do you have any recommendations or experience on how to negotiate from that position so that you're not able to be voted off or you're not in the minority? I, I think that's a just a, a really big question on the, the, the size investment that you're looking for and the kind of growth that you are hoping to achieve. So, um, you know, if it's, if it's sort of like a, and, and also, also sort of your comfort level of working for somebody else. And, you know, if you're going out and just trying to raise a massive amount of money and you're able to be, uh, maybe even majority acquired by a venture capital business that does majority acquisitions, which not a ton do, um, you know, a lot of times they, they're in it, you know, 30 or 40 or 49% of the business and they, they want to leave it to the CEO. And then as different rounds come up, then the CEO loses their majority. But I really think it, it depends on what your personal comfort level is as a founder in, are you the type of person that like just is, is, you know, you're just not real good at taking direction from somebody else. 
Um, and I hate to say it, but like you think you know it all. And so you don't want to give up majority share because you think you know it all. You don't ever want to be voted off the board. And I really think it comes more down to like assessing your own personality. And if I were just to look at myself personally, and if I were to go out and start a business where I did raise money, um, what I do know about myself in particular is that I've never really worked for anybody else. I started my first business when I was 21. So sure, I worked at a commission only, you know, sales position where you really are kind of your own boss. Right. And I worked at a yogurt shop, but that doesn't really count. I was a good employee then I think. Um, but I've never worked for anybody else. So I, I really don't know. Like what I can say is I'm not sure how comfortable I would be if I didn't have a majority ownership in a business. Like, I just don't know if my personality would, would fit well with that. And so I think that's a soul searching thing that a founder has to do to ask themselves, how much money do I need to raise? You know, cause I would much rather not speaking at a, at a day-to-day everyday operational capacity, but in a long-term monetization capacity, I'd rather have 10% of a billion versus 90% of 10 million, right? Uh, I think most people would. And if you really see that giving up a majority stake in the business is going to help you get to unicorn status, then I would say go for it. If you can operate in that capacity, if they have every intention to leave you on as CEO and and that's what you want to do, then then go for it. But again, I'm going to go back to, I know this is a long way to answer, but I'm going to go back to searching your soul in terms of like what makes you the most comfortable And if it makes you the most comfortable to make sure that you keep your position as CEO, as founder, as running the business, and you can't get nixed, then you just have to set up your investment strategy to accomplish that, right? I mean, it's, I think it's sort of that simple. No, that's very logical and, and it makes a lot of sense. So thank you for answering it. This has been really fascinating. I could speak with you for hours, really enjoyed the conversation. And I think our audience would get a lot out of this. So thank you again. If anyone would like to connect with you, pick your brain some more, where's the best place to connect? Uh, probably, uh, LinkedIn, I would say. And if you, uh, I would say if anybody sends an invite uh, on LinkedIn and just says, you know, I, I heard about you on Brenda's podcast, uh, I'll accept the invitation and I will be more than happy to engage in, in conversation. That's probably the, the best way to go about it. Awesome. And I'm going to for sure invite you to the Founder Pack community as I look, well. I look so forward to that. <laughs> maybe it will save the LinkedIn outreaches. <laughs> yeah, possibly. And, and I'm sure, and, you know, I've got, I've got so much to learn. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 47, but I can sure as heck learn from a 27-year-old. And uh, so I'd be happy to be a participant in that because... Uh, this is my, you know, my, my second, uh, my second home run, so to speak. But, uh, there aren't many major league baseball players that, uh, make it to the hall of fame with only two home runs in a season. So I want to keep going. It's a nice analogy. And for those listening, it's a really easy URL. If any other founders would like to join, it's thefounderpack.com. 
Awesome. Thank you so much again, Zach. It was a pleasure and uh, hope maybe we'll even bring you back on again to talk about that post-board acquisition learning. That, that sounded yeah. fascinating yeah. too. All right. Well, good luck in your uh, next gig and um, I'm excited, as I said, to see what you do yeah. next. Well, thanks, Brenda. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Likewise. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack Podcast with Brendan Rod, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and ITSBMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.